You know, there are events in life that are timely events. It seems like once those events take place, they cannot be revisited. They are, they are gone forever. The only thing that they exist is in our imaginations or in our memories, not our imaginations, but in our memories. And we can't go back to them. And sometimes those events, we miss out on those events. And it's amazing how, we, how the missing out on those events really does affect us. I think about the birth of our, of our four children. I had the opportunity and the benefit of, of being in the room when all four of them were born. And the crazy thing about it is they gave us nine months to prepare for it. Well, one of them just gave us seven and a half months. But anyway, as we think about that, uh, that was kind of a big buildup and a big lead up to that moment. And, and I wouldn't... I wouldn't take away those moments, and I remember those moments still today, and they're, they're very vivid on all four of those, those events. This morning, we're going to step away from our journey through 2 Corinthians, and we're going to look at a major event in the Messianic calendar. It was an event that, that most of the Jews were waiting for, anticipating the coming of the Messiah. And when it happened, as it unfolded, Many of them missed it. They failed to see it. They failed to recognize that event. And so this morning, we're going to turn our time to the book of Luke. And we want to look at Luke chapter 19. And we want to look at verses 28 through 44. And we're going to look at the time of visitation. Now, as we think about the time of visitation, this is Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday is not normally a, an event where I stop what we're studying and, and look at a particular topic because I just don't do that. Sometimes I do Palm, Psalm, Palm Sunday messages, but, but not frequently. But on our Wednesday nights, we have been making our way through the Gospels. And as we've made our way through the Gospels, the, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. And the presentation of Jesus coming into Jerusalem has been on the frontal lobe of my brain. And so when I looked and saw that April Fool's Day was followed by Palm Sunday, I thought it was a good thing for us to stop and to look at this event and see it unfold. And so that's why we're in Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 44 this morning. As we look at this passage, there are three headings that we're going to use to kind of lead us through this section. First thing we see is the approach, and that's verses 28 through 35. And then we see the adoration that takes place is in verse 36 through 38. And then we see the adversaries in verses 39 through 44. Before we dive into this this morning, let's just pause and pray. Father, we're grateful for this morning that you've given to us, and we're grateful for this opportunity, Lord, for us to, to look into this passage. And I pray, Lord, as we look into this passage, that this passage would look into us, open our hearts and our minds, that we would just see and understand and grasp what you have for us. And I pray, Lord, that as we look into this, as we see, as we hear from you, I pray that it would touch our hearts, and I pray we would grasp what you have for us. Father, we are grateful for your son, Jesus, grateful for all that we have because of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Now, as we dive into this this morning, the first thing we want to see is the approach. Look at verse 28 with me, Luke 19, verse 28. And it reads this way. 
And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Now, Jesus has been ministering all through Israel. And prior to this, Jesus has been in Jericho. But as Jesus has been all through Israel, he has been making his way to Jerusalem. There was a plan and there was a purpose. And as God's plan unfolded, as God's purpose unfolded, Jesus was right there with each fold. It was in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, that Jesus began making his way towards Jerusalem. It says in verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So Jesus was looking forward to the time when he would go to the cross and when he would be that sacrifice for us. And so as that time was approaching, Jesus knew that it was approaching and Jesus was up in northern Israel and he began making his way down to Jerusalem. And that's what we see in the beginning or in Luke chapter 9 verse 51. Uh, Jesus knew the hour was approaching. And as it comes to this time, we are about a week before, this is the Sunday before the crucifixion and the resurrection. And so Jesus knew that the time was now. Jesus knew that the time had come. The Passover lamb had to be selected and the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And they were looking, Jesus knew that was coming. Now look at verse 29. It says, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet. Now, Bethphage and Bethany are just a short distance from Jerusalem, about two miles from where Jerusalem is. Uh, Bethany was located on the road between Jericho and between Jerusalem, kind of a major trade route. And so a lot of people would pass through, through Bethany. Uh, no one really knows where Bethphage is. It's kind of off of the beaten path, they think, uh, not where Bethany is, but a little bit further off of the trade route, but both of them really close together. <laughs> Bethany is the hometown of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. We know, we know them from John's Gospel, and not much is known about Bethphage, but it does seem like this is, I mean, we read that this is where they are. The Mount of Olives is on the east side of Jerusalem. So as we think about this being Jerusalem, that would be the east side. Okay, so the Mount of Olivet is on that side. Bethany and Bethphage are on the other side of the mountain. So when they head to Jerusalem, they head to the west, but the Mount of Olives is to the east. Does that make sense? Some of you guys are like looking at me going, yeah, whatever. Okay, that's good. All right, so look at verse 29. It says, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you. Now, Matthew's account of this shares that they were in Bethphage and <laughs> Jesus pointed to Bethany and sent them to Bethany. But Jesus sent them ahead and they walked ahead of, of where Jesus was at and they went into the village. Now, Jesus gave them some instructions. He said, go into the village in front of you where on entering, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet set. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So he told them to go and he told them that once they went, 
he would tell them what they would find. And so he shared with them what they would find. Now, Matthew's account tells us that there would be a donkey and there would be a colt. He said there would be a donkey and there would be a colt. Matthew 21, verse 2 says this. Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Now, Luke only focuses on the, the presence of the colt there, but Matthew says, says the donkey's there. Now, notice that as we read this, it's a colt that has never been ridden. This colt has never been ridden. The Jews regarded animals that hadn't been ridden or that were unbroke. They regarded them as being suitable for holy purposes. And so Jesus sends them to go and to find the colt. And he tells them, bring the colt to me. And so he shares with them to go and to do that. Now think about this for a moment. He tells them where to go and what they'll find. And then he says, if anybody asks, just tell them that the Lord has need of it. Now, as they go, I can't help but think how much they are trusting Jesus. Because this looks a lot like stealing of livestock. <laughs> because if they go and untie it and they just say, hey, we're just taking it for the Lord, and they don't know who the Lord is, they're stealing. I don't care who you're getting it for. You're stealing it. So there's some trust here by these disciples to, to trust the Lord. And so they are trusting the Lord as they go. Now look at verse 32. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. So think about this for a moment. As they walk into the village, I'm sure as they were walking, they were saying, what's the animal going to look like? What's the donkey going to look like? Will the colt be close by? How is this all of these minds? Why didn't he tell us it would be a red rope, a blue rope, something like that? How are we going to, left side, right side? Isn't that how it is when you drive? Is this, am I looking for the left side or is it going to be on the right side? Will it be a big sign, small sign? I mean, those are the things that go through our minds, right? When we're looking for something. So I imagine that's how they are as they're looking. There's no, there's no Facebook listings, okay? So they're going kind of blind with just the instructions that Jesus has given them. So they come and they find it, and I'm sure they're wondering, hey, is this the right one? They begin to untie it. And sure enough, just as Jesus said, the owners come out, and the owners ask the obvious question. What are you doing? Why are you untying it? What's the password? The Lord has need. Not the blue goose flies to the west. The Lord has need. That is, that is their response. We don't see anything else about that conversation. It doesn't appear to be any conversation. The raising of Lazarus was no small feat. They possibly knew who the Lord was. But when this took place, they allowed the two disciples to take their donkey and their colt. It says in verse 30, 35, they brought it to Jesus. 
and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Now, notice as you read this, it says they set Jesus on the colt. The same colt that has never been ridden. The same colt that is unbroken. Unbroken colts usually try to throw their riders into the dirt. They don't really appreciate that effort. But Jesus comes and he sits on the back of this colt. It's not a problem for Jesus. This colt had to have recognized the creator of the universe. Because this is not normal. This is not normal behavior. I mean, even sometimes putting a saddle on a colt that has never had anything on its back even ends in excitement. But not in this situation. This getting of this colt was not something that was unintentional. The retrieving of this colt and Jesus' instructions to the disciples to get this colt was an intentional instruction. Matthew 21, verse 4 says this, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Matthew is writing his gospel to the Jews. And so Matthew wants to prove to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the reason he's writing the book of Matthew. And so a number of times through Matthew's gospel, he says, as it is written, and he shares that as a reference to an Old Testament prophecy. So the Jews would hear that Old Testament prophecy and go, aha, it does match with Jesus. And so that's exactly what Matthew does here. The prophecy that he takes this from is Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is deliberately presenting himself here to the nation of Israel as their Messiah. Just as the prophecy said it would happen, Jesus is following through each of those prophecies. And we see this act of humility. Normally a king, when he would come and conquer, he would come in riding a white horse. Now Revelation tells us that one day Jesus will return and he will be riding a white horse. Amen. And there will be no doubt then that he is king. This is Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. John 1.1, 1, 1, John refers to Jesus as the Word of God. John 1.1, 1, 1, 1, 1.2, and 1.3 speaks about the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. 
And then in John 1.14, he speaks about the word taking on flesh and dwelling among us. That's Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, the word, will come back again riding a white horse. And when he comes that time, it's going to be in judgment. There's going to be judgment that comes, and it shares there that his robe will be dipped in blood. There is a picture of his judgment that's going to be taking place as he comes that time. Now, as Jesus comes riding on this colt to the donkey, this is not a political statement that he's making here. This is a spiritual statement. Jesus comes in riding in meekness and mildness as the Messiah, God's King. He comes riding in in peace. And if the people would accept him, he would accept their praise. But if they reject him, he's not going to defend himself. Jesus has a way of doing that. He could come and demand that we recognize him as Lord and Savior. I think he would be a lot more effective if he did. Can you imagine him sending angels just holding you by the ankle over a cliff? Believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. And the conversion rate would be 100%. Matthew 11, 28 shares that Jesus does a different. Jesus gives us an invitation. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I don't know how old you were when you came to know Christ, but I can remember being burdened with the weight of my own sin. My uncle was our pastor, and I remember for a couple of weeks there, he proclaimed the gospel to us, and I can remember feeling the guilt of my own sin, and I was in the third grade. But I knew that I had sinned against a holy and perfect God, and I knew I was guilty of that sin. And I mean, even as a third grader, I I could feel that on me. And I remember that he would give the invitation, and he would uh, lead us through the sinner's prayer, but I just... Just, I didn't know what to do. I just, I didn't. And I can remember him coming to me and, and talking to me. And he shared with me that he was a sinner as well, that he had sinned and come short of the glory of God. And he shared with me the only way that we can have forgiveness of sin is if we turn to Christ and realize that he died in our place. And then we could have the forgiveness of sin. And he said, would you like to Would you like to trust Christ this morning? And I said, yeah. And I mean, as a third grader, theologically sound as all get out, right? I prayed and asked God to forgive me for my sin. And I asked God to allow Jesus Christ to save me from my sins. And I mean, as a third grader, and you know how third graders just have piles and piles of sin. I remember just that load being lifted. I can remember feeling that, recognizing that I have been forgiven. I can't tell you the date that it was, but I know that I was forgiven. I know that I was forgiven in that moment. And that's the invitation that's being offered to all of us. Jesus wants us to come to him. The invitation is open. 
And if we would just come to him and trust his son, we could have that forgiveness. We could have that assurance. So this, this is the approach that takes place. Now notice the adoration that results. Verse 36. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Uh, as we think about this spreading of their cloaks, this kind of seems like an odd thing to us. But this really was a symbol of submission. This was a, a recognition uh, of, of who Jesus was. Uh, as he claimed to be king of the Jews, this was an act of re recognizing that. Uh, Matthew shares that some who came cut down palm branches. It says most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and they spread them on the road. And as this took place, they were praising God. It says in verse 37, as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. This is a multitude of his disciples. And as they are doing this, they are rejoicing and they are praising God. And notice it says, for all of the mighty works that they had seen. This was a worship service that was taking place here on the Mount of Olives as, as Jesus approached Jerusalem as he came down the Mount of Olives. John shares with us in his gospel that there were Passover visitors who joined with them as well. This is John 12, verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, as you think about Jerusalem, on the east side of Jerusalem, there's the gate they call the East Gate, and it points, faces east. Very good. East. Mount of Olives. East. Jesus and his group of disciples are traveling west down the Mount of Olives towards Jerusalem. The people in Jerusalem hear Jesus is coming and they flow out of that east gate and they bring palm branches and they lay those palm branches down. Another symbol of submission, recognizing Jesus for who he is and worship takes place there as they come. And as we look at this and as we see this happening, one crowd coming from Jerusalem, one, count, one crowd coming from Bethany with Jesus. And as these two groups come, they meet together. And this worship celebration is taking place here. This is the first time that we see anything like this taking place. There was one time in John chapter 6 when Jesus fed 5,000 people plus women and children, 15 to 20,000 people all partook of food. And that crowd desired to make Jesus king. But it says this, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. It was not time. The time had not fully been spent. So Jesus withdrew. But now, the time is now. And Jesus comes 
And Jesus allows this to take place. Jesus would be crucified on Friday. Uh, and as we think about this, the, the, those who were opposed to Jesus wanted to wait until after the Passover. But Jesus had to do something to speed up the process because it was going to unfold according to God's time. And this definitely sped up the process. The timing was perfect. Verse 38 says, They were saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Jesus is coming in the name of the Lord. This was Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the King of Israel. He was coming and he was approaching. Matthew shares this in verse 9 of chapter 21. The crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They were echoing Psalm 118 as he came. And they were, they were praising him. They were recognizing him as the Son of David. And that's who the Messiah would be is the Son of David. And so they are proclaiming him as the son of David. And, and, and the word Hosanna here means save us now. That is, the, that is what, they're, what they're shouting. That's what they're declaring. Save us now. They, they wanted saved politically. They wanted saved economically. But they didn't understand that they needed to be saved spiritually. They were missing that whole element of the Messiah. And that's why Jesus was coming as he was. But they missed that. They didn't recognize that. They failed to realize the moment. Now notice verse 39. We see the adversaries. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. You see, the Pharisees did not believe. And they saw this adoration that was being that was taking place. They saw it as blasphemous. They didn't think it was right. They did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and they didn't believe that he should be worshipped. And they didn't believe that anybody else should be worshiping him either. Isn't it crazy how we see the same thing today? I mean, they're okay if we talk about God. But when we start talking about Jesus, when we start exalting Jesus, they don't want to worship Jesus, and they really don't want us to worship Jesus either. The more things change, the more things stay the same. But look at verse 40. Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silence, the very stones would cry out. Jesus claims right here in this sentence that he is deserving of this praise. Some say that Jesus never claimed to be God. But how does that mesh with Jesus allowing them to be worshipped, allowing them to worship him. It doesn't mesh. Because if he's not God, accepting the worship of God would be blasphemous. I mean, even the angels, when they tried to, people try to worship them, the angels say, no, 
get out, don't do that, you're going to get us both killed. Remember in the book of Acts when, when Peter and Barnabas, or Paul and Barnabas are being worshipped and they, they thought he was Zeus, they thought Barnabas was Zeus because he was bigger, and they started worshipping and Paul and, and, and Barnabas said, no, don't do that, don't worship us. But Jesus here, when called out on this, he says, no, if they stop worshiping me, then these stones will cry out. The king will have his worship. One way or another, he will be worshiped. And even if he were to stop these men from worshiping him, the stones would worship him. That would have been the first rock band, wouldn't it? <laughs> I had to. I couldn't, I couldn't leave it. And if those rocks got overly excited and they rolled down the hill, <laughs> yeah, your wife will explain that to you later. <laughs> Can you imagine that, though? The stones on the Mount of Olives praising the name of Jesus. You know, they were ready to. Creation is ready to. This is Romans 8, verse 19. It says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the Son of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You see, even creation is in bondage because of sin. Even creation has been affected by sin. It looks forward to that time when that will be taken away. Verse 41. When he drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it. As Jesus follows this parade route, he observes Jerusalem. This seems like a day of triumph. This seems like a day of celebration. But Jesus weeps. Jesus doesn't weep for himself because he knows what's going to happen on Friday. Jesus weeps for the people of Jerusalem. Jesus weeps for those who are lost. Jesus' soul is grieved for the lost sinners. Mm -hmm. And he looks at Jerusalem and his heart aches for them. And notice what he says in verse 42. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. The people of Jerusalem didn't know the things that make for peace. That peace is available to us to everyone who turns to Jesus. No matter how hard we try to make our own peace with God, we can never do it. You see, because we're not the offended party, God is the offended party. Because of our sin, we have offended God. God gets to come up with the terms for the peace treaty. We don't get to do that. God does. And the only way that we can have peace with God is through Jesus Christ. Yeah. Romans 5 verse 1 says this, Therefore, 
Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. That is the only way. There is salvation in no other way, but only through Christ. Now look at verse 43. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and they will surround you and they will hem you in on every side and they will tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Jesus knew what was ahead for Jerusalem. Jesus describes the destruction that will take place and what that destruction will look like. The destruction of Jerusalem would come in 70 AD. General Titus would surround the city on April 9th, 70 AD. And all of those who were there celebrating the Passover, who made the journey from all over Israel, they would be trapped inside the city of Jerusalem. And Titus would have this barricade around and no one could come in and no one could come out. And the people would starve inside the confines of the city of Jerusalem. Titus would take over and conquer small parts of the city. As the months went by, he would defeat small parts of the city. Finally, in September of 70 AD, Titus fully defeated Jerusalem. And Titus tore it all down. Caesar gave him the instruction that he wanted Jerusalem to appear as if no one ever lived there. The temple was destroyed. The temple has not been rebuilt. The temple was where the Jews would come as they practiced Judaism and they would offer up sacrifices. And since 70 AD, they have not been able to offer up a sacrifice because that's the only place that a sacrifice could be offered up. Everything destroyed just as Jesus said it would be. Notice verse 44. Because this is the reason. Because Jesus wept over them. He saw the destruction that was coming. He said, it's coming because you did not know the time of your visitation. You did not know the time of your visitation. All of that destruction would happen because they did not know the time of their visitation. They had an opportunity to recognize Jesus. Throughout the three years of Jesus' earthly ministry, he fulfilled prophecy after prophecy after prophecy, making the blind see, helping the deaf hear, helping the lame walk, even bringing people back from the dead. Lazarus from Bethany was one of those. And when they looked at Lazarus from Bethany, they said people are following Jesus because he raised him from the dead. You know what we need to do? Kill Lazarus. Their desire was not to follow Jesus. 
the time of their visitation had come, and they refused Jesus. They refused to give glory to God when they had the opportunity. The time of visitation came and went, and they failed to recognize it. You know, as we sit here today, the invitation has been given to us. Jesus offers us eternal life. And if we, by faith, would look to Jesus and recognize him as our Lord and Savior, we could receive forgiveness of sin. Even though we are born dead in our trespasses and sins, born as enemies of God, we can have peace with God. Not because of how great we are, but because of what Jesus Christ accomplished for you. We can have peace with God. And that invitation is there. All of you who are weary and heavy laden, been trying to come to that point in your life where you're good enough for God to accept you, it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. I remember visiting with a young man one time, and he said, boy, all that you share about Jesus is good, but I know that he would never accept me. So I'm trying to be better so that Jesus would accept me. And I said, man, you'll never get there. You'll never get there. Jesus has to meet you where you are. And then once you meet Jesus, and once your life is touched by Jesus, then your life will change. Mm -hmm. And you will recognize a difference. Those around you will recognize a difference. Because Jesus changes us from the inside out. That's where he impacts us. And as we grow in our relationship, then we become more and more like Christ. But he has to touch us first. Because on our own, we'll never do that. So maybe you're here today and you say, hey, when I'm 35 years old, I'll accept Jesus. When I'm really old, like 36, then I'll trust Jesus. But you know what? You'll keep moving that barrier back. Maybe you're thinking, ah, he's not, there's no way that he could accept me. But you know, the apostle Paul turned to Christ and he had killed Christians. I don't think you're there yet. So Jesus gives you the invitation. You who are weary and heavy laden, come to me, and I will give you rest. So my challenge for you today is recognize that today is the day of your visitation. Today is the day that God is offering you salvation. And if you've never trusted Christ before as Lord and Savior, today's the day. Today's the day. So there you have it. The approach as they came on that Palm Sunday as they approached Jerusalem. Jesus put things in place to fulfill Scripture. The adoration was there. People saw him. But there were others who refused to recognize him because they didn't realize it was the time of their visitation. So what do we take home from this? What do we apply to our Sunday afternoon? I think it's amazing that God sent his king into the world. 
I think it's amazing that he would be willing to send his king into this world. But he did. Jesus came and many people missed it. <coughs> that same one who came as king died as king on the cross as a perfect sacrifice so he could be our redeemer. Have you missed his visit? Have you ignored the invitation? This time of year, we start getting those graduation invitations, don't we? They start showing up, and sometimes we get those and we put them in the pile, put them under other things. Hopefully this is not an invitation that you put in the pile, that you think about maybe doing later. Hopefully this is an invitation that you accept today you received today because today is a great day we're not guaranteed tomorrow <clears throat> maybe you're here today and you've received the invitation and you've trusted Christ as Lord and Savior that's great stuff but what are you doing with it are you making sure that other people have invitations that's the great thing about this wedding banquet is there's still room as long as we have breath in our lungs, we still have an opportunity to be handing out invitations. Because it's an open-ended invitation, isn't it? We need to be handing out invitations. Father, we are grateful for this day that you've given to us. <clears throat>